Here we are for our final lesson on the scapulocostal joint dysfunction lessons with our depression dysfunction. When we're looking at depression dysfunction, it can actually commonly be sort of confused with or even combined with, to make things a little bit more complicated, elevation dysfunction. Noticing differences in passive state, as the image below will demonstrate to you, could either be a demonstration of depression dysfunction or elevation dysfunction or a combination of the two. That's what I mean by it can be a little bit confused sometimes with elevation dysfunction. To get a greater clarity on what's happening, since the use of manual technique and activation work as an intervention would be different for each side of those um, dysfunctions, we should assess movement. And what I mean by that is assess function rather than basing our assumptions solely on passive assessment. So the idea of having someone stand there and view them statically, passively, um, versus getting them to move through a range of motion. We should always be doing this, but in this particular example, it's highlighted the importance of such a thing is, is highlighted and heightened here. Keep in mind as well that underactivity can be just as dysfunctional as overactivity. And so we're not only looking at which scapula is more tightly bound to depression, for example, but also ones that cannot sustain a suitable depressive force to balance the muscles that generate scapulocostal elevation. The image that you see here um, is a great little example of perhaps one of the more subtle differences that we may see. The differences aren't huge, uh, and though when you mark up an image like this, they become a little bit more obvious. Um, just to note as well, those markups are actually my own. And if you take images at home, if you're doing some of this assessment work, whether it's a passive standing assessment like this or an actual movement assessment where you video uh, the, the movement and the execution of the movement itself, pause the video in increments and take a moment to perhaps mark up those images that you that you take as screenshots and sometimes the markups can help you really gain a little bit more clarity um, on what's going on from side to side. So evaluating our depression activity or our action. Optimal range of motion and this is similar across all of the scapulocostal movements. Our measurement tools aren't really well defined for scapulocostal depression and so a general sense uh, can be obtained by observing um, the height of armpit increase, or sorry, the height of the armpit crease above the ground, or more specifically, um, the apex of the scapula away from the ground. Yet, it can be more thorough to get a picture of, of the active movement and, and the assessment of how we execute scapulocostal depression. So our general, general assessment here. Since we can also anticipate observing a small amount of upward rotation, medial rotation, and posterior tipping of the scapulocostal joint in scapulocostal depression, we should also be taking note of this throughout the assessment of movement. We can do this by specifically observing the apex and the medial border of the scapulae and how they move throughout the range of motion. So the exercise, beginning with an open chain movement, 
Having someone move through elevation and depression slowly will help you to see the depression action through a full range of motion all the way from the top. So starting with an elevated position and then getting them to lower slowly through the depressive action can be very informative. You could then make it more of a closed chain movement by having the hands at your sides and attempting to lift your bum off the floor if you're seated by the use of scapulocostal depression. Note, there may be a tendency to have the hips move posteriorly in space uh, first and abdominal compression into the picture. But if we're trying to assess the depression of the scapulocostal joint, try to avoid those extra movements. So stay seated and prevent your tush from moving posteriorly or anteriorly and try to reduce the amount of spinal flexion that you're utilizing to press the floor away. If your arms are relatively short compared to your torso, you could build up the floor on either side of your, of your hips using books or blocks or something like that to get a little bit of extra height so that you can uh, assess closed chain scapulocostal depression. You could even make it more complex um, by involving different positions of the glenohumeral joint, like flexion, for example. Um, but we'll explore that a little bit more when we get to the actions of the glenohumeral joint. First up for our prime movers is pectoralis minor. An interesting thing to note at the very start of this section is that pectoralis minor is really only effective at its job contributing to scapulocostal depression when working together with the lower trapezius. This is because when working by itself, it drives more anterior tipping and downward rotation of the scapula. This speaks to a point we address below when it comes to our neutralizers. It's good to know this because in some ways this actually makes the pec minor and lower trapezius both antagonistic and synergistic, which is kind of a, a strange phenomenon. This is due to the convex nature of the rib cage and the attachments of these muscles. But that's just not a fun that's not just a fun fact. It's especially important to know this since we often see a pattern of overactive and adaptively shortened pectoralis minor muscles coupled with an underactive and adaptively lengthened lower trapezius muscle. With the common occurrence of an adaptively shortened pectoralis minor, this not only limits our absolute range of scapulocostal depression, so how far we can move, um, it's because it's a beautiful example of a muscle that limits its own action, which is something that you might we might see occasionally here. Um, it also represents a disordered depression with greater anterior tipping and downward rotation, which contrasts with, with what we would like to be seeing, as we noted above, which is the upward rotation and posterior tipping accompanying our scapulocostal depression. Now for our interventions, and manual therapy is of course our first one here. Considering the common overactivity of pectoralis minor, we commonly see trigger points here. The map to the left in the image that you can see demonstrates that trigger points can really commonly be found throughout the full length of the muscle. And so you should make sure that when you search, you're searching the full length of the fibers when you're applying manual technique. This goes for, of course, if you're applying it to yourself or if you're a manual therapist, a trained manual therapist, when you're applying it to others. Also keep in mind that just because you find one trigger point doesn't mean there isn't more to be found. So just remember that if you find one, po one point, celebrate a little bit. 
and then also keep the search going. Worth noting as well are the red dots which are commonly noted referral pains um, and sensations and you'll notice where they go which not only is located locally but you'll also actually see the majority of um, noted referral sensation for pectoralis minor is actually more lateral than the pectoralis minor, minor itself. It looks a little bit more like deltoid, anterior deltoid sensation, which is an interesting piece of the equation. I also noted previously in uh, one of the other lessons that, that sometimes trigger points here in pectoralis minor can be so bad that they can actually mimic the sensation of a heart attack or a myocardial infarction. Um, and there are a number of instances that document this, um, and I've linked them there if you're interested in checking those side pieces out. I think that's pretty wild. Um, given that a heart attack is obviously a really substantial medical condition that needs immediate medical care and attention, whereas a trigger point, it, when we go into the physiology of a trigger point, it's actually quite minor physiology and it's not life-threatening or dangerous really at all. Um, and yet they can produce somewhat similar sensations. In terms of manual therapy application here, there's a video below that you can check out and it's a good example of how you can do this and access pectoralis minor. My own recommendation um, would be to initially begin with no movement. So, you know, my mandate is to stay still with manual application. So my recommendation, even though the video will recommend otherwise, is to stay still once you find a spot and then progress what's to what's called more of a pin and stretch method that you will see later on in the video. So pause the recording now please and take a look at this video, maybe even try it out at home if you have your rad rollers or something similar at the ready and then come on back here and press play on the recording when you're ready to go on further to the isolated contractions. Hopefully you found that video enlightening and maybe even gave it a go at home. So our isolated contractions are our next part of the intervention here. But since the pectoralis minor typically doesn't have too much trouble doing the work, as in it's typically overactive, we're not really going to talk about reactivating the muscle here, but instead we're going to talk about isolations that work on eccentric contraction in order to train the muscle through different lengths. So pectoralis minor is not necessarily bad at isolation, it's, it's pretty good at doing the work, but what we often need, because that overactivity is often accompanied with adaptive shortening, we need to focus on creating that activation through a full length or a full range of possible movement of the muscle. So even though what we talk about here is noted in the isolation section, it's not going to be um, as isolated in as you have encountered in some of the other lessons that we've already talked about. For this exercise, we want to be in a closed chain environment. That means uh, avoiding free moving limbs. So having the hands locked down either onto the floor or onto a stable surface. And we want to start with scapular costal depression to, to begin. Think of being between two tables, for example, two low, low tables close to the floor and placing your hands on them and hovering your feet off the ground with as much depression force as you can generate to start with. From this position, very slowly allow elevation to occur 
as much as you can. So thinking about drawing the scapular costal joint superiorly with the assistance of gravity, but the slow pace that you're doing it with means that it's actually an eccentric loading of pectoralis minor as pectoralis minor gradually allows that elevation to occur. Considering your position relative to gravity in this particular activity, your prime movers for elevation aren't really going to uh, take over the contraction or take over the work. Um, instead, we're focusing on that allowance of elevation by the effort of pectoralis minor. This exercise can be scaled. So for example, you could use a portion of your body weight by having one foot down or maybe the tiptoes of both feet down, or perhaps you could be seated on the ground um, using blocks, yoga blocks or something similar like books on either side of your body to um, build up little tables alongside of you. Alternatively, you could then scale it the opposite direction, which would be to use something like rings, which not only combines more muscles in general because it's a destabilized activity, but it also adds more shoulder flexion to the equation, which we haven't really covered yet, but it's still a really good tool to combine with this exercise. When it comes to integration, in terms of adding this muscle back into an integrated setting, remember that it's actually most commonly overactive and more likely to be doing the work in the first place and has a propensity there to therefore take over. So my recommendation here would be actually to first isolate and prepare the other muscles you want to integrate with the pectoralis minor. And then work with that first before combining the two sets of muscles together. The prime example muscle to prepare is the next one we're going to be talking about, and that's the lower trapezius. It's going to be important to isolate that one first to get it active and then combine with pectoralis minor later. Otherwise, what we could be doing is just reinforcing old movement patterns and allowing pec minor to do the majority of the work, which is what we want to try and detrain. We want to try and train uh, an even distribution of the load. So we'll talk about integration of these two shortly, once we've covered the lower trapezius below in some detail. So with that said, our next prime mover is the lower trapezius. The lower trapezius really should be more of a driver of scapulocostal depression than pectoralis minor, but actually that very rarely happens. The common underactivity and adaptive lengthening of the lower trapezius is most likely antagonistically linked to the overactivity and adaptive shortening of pec minor. That is to say, either the underactive slash long trapezius allows pec minor to become adaptively shortened, or the adaptive shortening of pec minor in a way forces the underactivity of the lower trapezius. Thus, the majority of us get less scapulocostal depression from this muscle than we really ideally should. Considering the insertion of the lower trapezius when it's contributing op optimally to scapulocostal depression, the pulling force on the medial component of the scapula is how we get our upward rotation, medial rotation, and posterior tipping of the scapulocostal joint. Similar to some of the other muscles we've encountered, facet joint mobility from the spine can be really influential in the ability of the lower trapezius to contract well. And so we also tend to see the thoracic region of the spine as being more commonly immobile. And that's something that 
we've now mentioned a couple of times and utilizing some interventions to focus on um, the origin of those muscles being in the thoracic region will benefit the movement of the shoulder girdle overall. Our manual therapy intervention for the lower trapezius. Even though they aren't common in the lower trapezius, we can still get trigger points and we've got one uh, demonstrated here in the image, sort of midway along the muscle fibers overlapping with the lower fibers of the rhomboids. The overlap can often mean that it can be confused with the rhomboids um, and rhomboids trigger points confused with lower trapezius ones too. So it sort of goes both ways in that particular instance. The best thing that we can do is then of course searching both the muscles thoroughly. Keep in mind that trigger points don't necessarily mean that the muscle is adaptively shortened. It may still be adaptively lengthened and have an active trigger point at the same time. Also keep in mind that manual therapy can also be used to help the lower traps by focusing on pectoralis minor, allowing the function of the lower trapezius to improve. So even though it's not direct manual therapy to the lower trapezius, we can still use manual therapy on a different muscle in pectoralis minor to give them a greater opportunity to give the lower trapezius muscles a greater opportunity to function well. Additionally, with the facet joints of the spine playing a role, please remember that we could utilize our rad rollers for these gentle self-applied mobilizations. Otherwise, we'd be looking to go to a trained medical professional who can provide um, gentle manual mobilizations. To isolate the lower trapezius muscles in activity, we would need to depress the scapular costal joint first but also pair it with external rotation of the glenohumeral joint. And that's gonna start us off with a little bit of a posterior tipping effect of the scapular costal joint, which will therefore restrict the involvement of pectoralis minor in the action. It'll also lengthen the latissimus dorsi, thus reducing the likelihood of a strong involvement from the lats as well. You could also add in some resistance from a TheraBand, for example, and you could try and position it so that it's trying to pull you into elevation that you have to then resist. So if you're standing, it could be tied to the ceiling or some kind of hook on the roof, or if you're prone, uh, it could be tied to a pole in front of you, for example. Integrating your contractions with other muscles. There's a study here that um, I linked to previously, and there's another link here, that tells us that the greatest electrical activity we can get from the lower trapezius, which in general would signal its greatest force of contraction, is in a prone overhead arm lift with external rotation of the glenohumeral joint, which is shown here in an image to the left of the text. We get the greatest activity here due to the combined actions of the arm and scapula positioning all of the movements of the lower trapezius as important. So external rotation assists with the posterior tipping of the scapular costal joint. The abduction of the arm drives upward rotation and medial rotation of the scapular costal joint. And so it prepares you to gain a greater activity in the lower trapezius because you're already positioning yourself in a way that is generally driven by the lower trapezius muscles. So not only does it bring you into a position where the trapezius 
uh, muscle is the lower trapezius muscle is shorter but that shortness makes it a little bit more likely to contract more strongly gives it a little bit more availability to join in the action so try that out at home and uh, and see how you feel see how long you can hold something like that prone work for uh, personally i have found it to be an interesting addition um, and one that when tried out especially for the first time really feels like a good solid area of opportunity um, so i'm interested to hear how that works for you at home our latissimus dorsi here are also noted as prime movers for our scapulocostal depression previously we noted that latissimus dorsi has a propensity towards overactivity and adaptive shortening whilst this is true for the general population my personal hypothesis is that if you're working with yoga practitioners you'll mostly find the opposite of that to be true or at least for that only to be partially true now of course if you are not a yoga instructor you can mostly expect that first note to be on point but if you instruct yoga just keep your eyes open uh, for an underactive latissimus dorsi whether adaptively lengthened or shortened depends on how it is used or, or lengthened or stretched or not as it relates to scapulocostal depression the impact of latissimus dorsi also increases downward rotation external rotation and anterior tipping and those actions specifically are for the scapulocostal joint so just keep that in mind especially if you are thinking external rotation here it's external rotation of the scapulocostal joint so whilst it assists in the depression of the scapula it also has some elements that are antagonistic with the lower trapezius also a conversation we'll get into soon is its influence over glenohumeral medial rotation as well as a range of other movements but for now in the context of scapulocostal depression we see an increase in latissimus dorsi recruitment when we're also internally rotated at the glenohumeral joint worth noting is that a significant significant portion of people working in an office environment will tend to have a posture that favors internal rotation at the glenohumeral joint already our interventions for the latissimus dorsi are something that we are back pocketing for now and we will cover over in the glenohumeral extension dysfunction lesson where it is a prime mover our accessory movers are up next pectoralis major is our first accessory mover here and it has a really interesting tendency which is a little different from the couplings we've spoken about so far and that is we do see it commonly adaptively shortened but at the same time under active especially in cases of chronic shoulder instability which uh, is noted in a study that i've linked to here that you can check out if you'd like we'll explore this more when we get to talking about glenohumeral medial rotation for the context of scapulocostal depression we may note then that the input of pectoralis major into the action may be through a small range and only relatively weak in most cases considering the other the other actions of pectoralis major its contribution to depression of the scapulocostal joint can be heightened by increasing glenohumeral medial rotation as you work into scapulocostal depression similarly to an adaptively shortened pectoralis minor when pectoralis major is also adaptively shortened we further limit the ability of the lower trapezius to perform its action interventions for pectoralis major are going to be found 
over on the lesson on glenohumeral medial rotation dysfunction. So pause the button on the, that for now and we'll get there soon. The subclavius is next in our accessory movers. Whilst this little muscle doesn't necessarily contribute a whole lot to the action of scapula, scapula costal depression by means of its strength, it can certainly play a su surprisingly significant role in range of motion and also discomfort in the action of scapulocostal depression. The subclavius is another muscle that tends to be overactive and adaptively shortened, as well as some other movements, which haven't, we, we haven't really spoken about yet. The subclavius also adds more anterior tipping and downward rotation to the scapulocostal joint. We've noted previously how these movements need to be balanced out by the lower trapezius and how they often struggle to do that because of their own common adaptations. And we also mentioned above how this can be the result, this can result in a relatively superior glide of the, of the humeral head in the glenoid fossa and associated sensations of impingement. As a supporter of depression, we should note then that subclavius can also restrict elevation of the scapula costal joint, especially when coupled with glenohumeral flexion. In this particular example, we think about the movement of the scapulocostal joint being limited by subclavius and then requesting more movement of the glenohumeral joint in order to achieve the same degree or the same degree of execution of shoulder flexion. What that means is the humeral head within the glenoid fossa migrates into a different position because the scapulocostal joint i.e. the glenoid fossa, is not coming with you as much as we would ideally like. And that's where the sensations of impingement might arise from, is the migration of the head of the, the humerus to a different location in the glenoid fossa that we don't necessarily or isn't necessarily optimal. And in this situation, trigger points are reasonably common, but they are pretty difficult to access. Considering that subclavius is never actually really a prime mover of anything, um, and it is commonly implicated here in, in shoulder girdle dysfunction, we're actually going discuss, to discuss the interventions right here in this lesson. So manual therapy. The image above, that you can flip up to and have a look, shows both common trigger point location and common pain or sensation referral patterns as a result of those trigger points. It should be noted that this muscle can be difficult to access also, and especially in this instance. Unless we are trained manual therapists, please make sure your clients are exploring self-release techniques for this muscle. To assist in this, here's a brief video describing a self-applied manual release that you can check out. When watching the video, note that you're also looking to place your massage tool, and if you have a rad roller, I would recommend using those, in close to the sternum, at the costal cartilages, just inferior to the clavicle. As with most instances, I recommend moving much slower than is demonstrated in the video, which you'll see. And, and when I say much slower, I mean much, much slower than is demonstrated in the video. So pause the recording now, check out the video, have a go at the manual release, and I will and restart, and I'll be with you again in a minute when you restart the recording for our isolated contractions work. 
For your isolated contractions, I would mostly recommend typically to utilize isolated contractions after manual release, but it's really difficult to contract the subclavius in isolation, and I've yet to really come across a good exercise that isolates it well. So, considering that, we're going to jump right into integrated contractions. Again, considering the typical pattern of adaptive shortening and overactivity of the subclavius, our active work should be focused on generating effort through a full range of motion. Because of this, my recommendation to train this muscle would be through hanging-based exercises, wherein you're, when you are in full flexion of the glenohumeral joint, hanging against gravity as a starting point. Then from that position, working scapulocostal depression, which is, of course, gravity resisted at this point, and glenohumeral extension, which is also gravity resisted. Both of these actions combined should put the greatest amount of force demands on the subclavius. Working with assisted load will make this a little bit more accessible in some instances. Keeping in mind, that the subclavius is still not a prime mover and therefore many other things will be working very hard at the same time so you probably won't necessarily feel one specific sensation that is very targeted towards the subclavius there's probably going to be a lot of things happening all at the same time with this exercise the serratus anterior specifically the lower fibers of the serratus anterior are our next accessory mover here for scapulocostal depression not only do the inferior fibers of serratus anterior help with the inferior movement of the scapular costal joint in depression, but you'll also see it show up as a stabilizer of the action, and we'll cover that a little bit more further below. Keeping in mind that the serratus anterior is commonly adaptively lengthened and underactive, especially in shoulder girdle dysfunctions, we take note of the previous interventions that we've covered for the serratus anterior. We've covered that if you want to flip back, we've covered that a little bit, uh, or quite well actually, over in our scapulocostal protraction dysfunction lesson. And you can head back there if you want a little refresher on that. For our antagonists of scapulocostal depression, our upper trapezius is listed first here. While the upper trapezius are most commonly underactive and, adapt and adaptively lengthened as well, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't check in with them to assess. If they do follow the typical pattern noted above, then they're not likely to be restricting scapulocostal depression at all. Of course, that may indicate that, that they need their own attention for optimizing their ability to elevate the scapulocostal joint, but that's of course covered in our scapulocostal elevation lesson. If you do want a little refresher on that, flick back to your scapulocostal elevation dysfunction lesson, and then we'll meet up with you here in a moment. The levator scapulae are also some antagonists for scapulocostal depression. Where the upper trapezius rarely restricts depression due to its common adaptations, the levator scapulae does indeed often restrict this action due to its own common adaptations being overactivity and adaptive shortening. Especially with the lower trapezius often being underactive and long or adaptively lengthened, it's a bit of a battle to compete against the levator scapulae. 
This can show up in a variety of different ways, including the increased downwards rotation, anterior tipping, and lateral rotation of the scapulocostal joint when attempting to execute depression of the scapulocostal joint. Recall at this time that this is the same combination of movements that can often be contributed to by an overactive latissimus dorsi and pectoralis minor. So if you see this pattern, you should check in with all three of these structures for overactivity and then test the stabilizers for underactivity, which, is, which we'll cover more on that in a minute. But just to give you an idea then, if you see those common patterns, it shouldn't necessarily mean that one muscle is the only target. Keep in mind that those common adaptations in different muscles may drive the same um, resultant aberrant movements. So in this particular instance, there's three of them listed. Check in with all three of them. For the interventions for levator scapulae, just flick back to the scapulocostal elevation dysfunction lesson, and you can take some time to refresh over there if you'd like. The rhomboids are next, and they are also considered antagonists for this action. The literature is divided about whether adaptive shortening and overactivity is more or less common than adaptive lengthening and underactivity for the rhomboids. So it's a little bit of a 50-50 situation out there. As it relates to scapulocostal depression specifically, if the rhomboids are overactive, overactive and or adaptively shortened, then we can anticipate that it would restrict the action by not allowing the scapula to descend properly, nor the upward rotation that we need to fully occur. In a similar fashion to the note above about levator scapulae, if we don't see upward rotation of the apex of the scapula on depression, then we may also need to check in with the rhomboids to check for that overactivity and adaptive shortening. If on the other hand, the rhomboids are underactive and adaptively lengthened, the likelihood of them being antagonistic here is very low. And so we haven't spoken about it just here. The interventions, uh, for the rhomboids were covered back in our retraction dysfunction lesson. So if you want to review those, you can flick back and have a look at those before we move on to our neutralizers and fixators. The lower trapezius is the first of these. As well as having a strong role in producing the movement of scapulocostal depression, the lower trapezius also needs to neutralize the downward rotation, lateral rotation, and anterior tipping that both the pec minor and latissimus dorsi generate. Without this neutralizing effect, we end up causing the humeral head to be superiorly translated or migrated on the glenoid fossa, which may lead to those sensations of impingement in the area of the acromioclavicular joint or the AC joint, but more specifically to the superior element of the glenohumeral joint capsule as you depress the scapulocostal joint. And for the interventions for the lower trapezius, just scroll up a little bit further for on this same page and you'll see them up there if you need a review. Our intrinsic stabilization subsystem and anterior oblique subsystem, you've seen these, the, these names now a few times. In the example of quote-unquote pure scapulocostal depression, these subsystems fixate the rib cage and the spine so that the scapulocostal joint may move in as much isolation as possible. 
On the level of integration, these muscles are fascially continuous with a number of muscles that we've explored as it relates to scapulocostal movements. And in an ideal setting, they'd all be able to integrate for optimal function of our prime moving, accessory, stabilizing, and neutralizing muscles. And last up here for this lesson, we've got our stabilizers. Our serratus anterior, rhomboids, and levator scapulae. Each of these muscles have other noted roles in scapulocostal depression, as you will have seen above, as well as being an important, important in the stabilization of the action in order to keep the humeral head in an optimal position relative to the glenoid fossa. In an ideal setting, these muscles would be helping to control the balance and balance the appropriate movements to achieve optimal amounts of depression, upwards rotation, posterior tipping, and medial rotation of the scapulocostal joint. Not, Not only for the purpose of the scapulocostal joint itself, but also to, to prevent mostly superior, as that's the result of our common movement habits, but also inferior translation of the humeral head against the glenoid fossa. This is because the glenohumeral joint is really quite shallow. And we'll talk a little bit more about that soon, but because of it being so shallow, it has a greater propensity towards that glide. And then also, as a result of that, there is a greater likelihood of things like dislocation. So to, in an effort to reduce the likelihood of dislocation or subluxation, we're trying to optimize how the head of the humerus remains more or less relatively centered on the glenoid fossa as it moves. For our interventions here, when the action of scapulocostal depression is unstable or we see aberrant movements of the joint, we would want to check in with all of these muscles to see what's happening, all of these stabilizers to see what's happening, to see if um, our, any interventions could assist the situation. For the serratus anterior, you'll see those interventions back on uh, scapulocostal protraction dysfunction. For the rhomboids, you'll see that in the retraction dysfunction le lesson. And for the levator scapulae, you'll see that in the elevation dysfunction lesson. So if you would like to review those, you can go ahead, absolutely. You'll also see uh, a series of links here for the images to make sure that everything's referenced properly at the bottom here. Feel free to check them out. If you have any questions about any of the scapulocostal joint dysfunction work, please do reach out. Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you in the next lecture, and I will see you in the next lecture before we then get back into our voice recordings for our dysfunction lessons for the glenohumeral joint. So we'll see you soon.